1981, 17-year-old David Hampton, an aspiring actor from Buffalo, rolled into New York to follow his dream. He left Buffalo because he believed he was better than everyone else, because he was destined for great and fabulous things in the big city. After arriving in New York, he discovered that the auditions were hard to come by, and instead resorted to a life of con artistry, spinning fantastical lies about himself to steal money from naive and wealthy Manhattan families and inadvertently becoming the inspiration for the hit play Six Degrees of Separation. His story sort of began by accident at the popular nightclub Studio 54. But before we go into the details, let's learn a little bit more about David and his life pre Six Degrees. I'm Sonali Burgis, and you're listening to Grifter. David was born in 1964 as the eldest of three children in a middle-class family. He was a precocious, talented, and in his own words, often misunderstood child. His school record was troubled and spotty. He'd attended several parochial schools throughout his childhood, including the prestigious private Nichols School, where he transferred twice and never graduated. Bouncing from one expensive prep school to another, he had but one strong desire, to get out of Buffalo. Family friends knew him to be very clever and articulate. He was charming and smart and witty. His father, an attorney, wanted him to be a doctor or a lawyer or something conservative. But David believed that he was destined for other things. He wanted to go into the arts, to become a dancer or an actor. He was drawn to the bright lights of New York City, to the music, fame, and glamour. He believed Buffalo was a place without, quote, glamorous or fabulous or outrageously talented people. He was looking for something huge, dreaming big, aspiring to great heights. In his mind, the fabulous people lived in New York City. David, like many of us, had a real need to be someone important and special. Of course, the life of an aspiring actor is far from simple. David soon realized that it wasn't going to be an easy ride in New York. It was challenging to land auditions, and even more so, to get callbacks. The city was expensive and the money was difficult to come by. David lived with a friend who was a student at the Fashion Institute of Technology and supported himself by working in an ice cream shop and a bookstore. David's first few years away from home were dotted with various misdemeanors. He had gotten into his fair share of trouble with the law. In 1982, David left New York and went to California where he was arrested in San Francisco for taking a vehicle without the owner's consent. But the case was later dismissed. In early 1983, he registered at the State University of New York in Buffalo, where he supposedly signed up for acting classes that he rarely attended. He was later arrested by campus police for stealing $54 from a fellow student. He pleaded guilty to a lesser charge of criminal trespass 
and paid the $54 back in restitution. He was again arrested for criminal mischief after breaking a dorm room window, which got him banned from the college dormitories. However, he decided not to obey the ban and returned a few weeks later to pick up some things that he'd left behind, only to be arrested once again for criminal trespass. He was sentenced to six months in prison. In the summer of 1983, he returned to New York and started hanging about the Columbia University dorms, pretending to be a gay rights student leader and persuading students to let him stay in their dorms. After being accused of stealing from their rooms, he was banned from campus. David still yearned for a life filled with fame and fortune. He still wanted to be an actor, but he soon discovered that his biggest roles would be on the street, not on stage. Hey everyone, this is Prash, host of Prash's Murder Map. Pack your passport, jump on a plane, and join me on a journey to investigate some of the most heinous and enigmatic murders across the globe and throughout history. We'll look at forensics, psychology, and more as we dissect solved and unsolved cases like Australia's Frankston killer and a murderous family on the American frontier. Hope to see you soon. While in New York, he and a friend learned about a star-studded event at the legendary Studio 54 nightclub in Midtown. They figured they had to be there to get into the event somehow because they might be able to meet someone important, someone who could give them that great showbiz break they so desperately craved. So, dressed in their finest clothes and donning their brightest smiles, the two friends presented themselves to the doorman at Studio 54, who scowled at them and demanded $50 per person for entry, money that the boys didn't have. Disheartened, they slumped off, but they soon decided that they couldn't just give up so easily, that this was an opportunity they simply couldn't lose because they weren't allowed in. So, they came up with a simple solution. They would pose as the sons of famous Hollywood celebrities. David's friend would be the child of Gregory Peck. David himself found that it would have to be one of three prospective fantasy fathers, Sammy Davis Jr., Harry Belafonte, or Sidney Poitier. He thought he looked most like Belafonte, but he'd read that Belafonte had a model son who was also named David, and that this David seemed like the type to frequent Studio 54, a risk he couldn't take. Sammy Davis Jr., on the other hand, was a bit too fabulous and glitzy for David. So, he settled on the Oscar-winning star Poitier, because he believed Poitier was a class act. So, with their newfound identities, they returned to the club, heads held high, hearts drumming rapidly in their chests, trying hard not to slip up. Surprisingly, the doorman didn't seem to recognize them. So they told him that they were the sons of famous Hollywood actors and were ushered in through the center doors like they owned the place. Their ruse had worked. David was elated. 
He felt a thrill from pretending to be someone else. By impersonating a famous person's progeny, he found that he was able to get into the club, and now he wanted to see what else he could do. So when he'd left Studio 54, he didn't leave David Poitier behind. His alter ego, his more famous half, was born. But what could he do with it? Three days after the Midtown event, David Poitier struck again, this time at a posh Upper West Side restaurant. He confidently sauntered in and casually explained to the maitre d' that he was to meet his Oscar-winning father there. But could he take a table while he waited? He enjoyed a lavish meal, but his father, strangely, failed to show. Owing to Poitier's awe-inspiring celebrity status, the management willingly waived the bill. By now, David was hooked. The story about being an Oscar-winning actor's son just got bigger and better. Yes, he'd meant to find a job, but it was difficult, and the career of a con artist was so much easier and far more rewarding. He'd taken a shot at acting, but his artistry clearly resided in the con. He was glib, charming, and funny. The ideal skills of the consummate con man. One night, he found himself at the New York apartment of the actress Melanie Griffith. He rang the doorbell, and Griffith's friend Gary Sinise, a fellow actor who was on Broadway for the season, answered the door. Gary was staying in Griffith's home while she was away. David Poitier told Gary that he was a close friend of Melanie and Rocky's, and he just missed a plane to Los Angeles. His luggage and money were on the plane, so he really needed a place to stay and claimed to have stayed at Griffith's house in the past. Gary saw no reason to deny him the sofa. That night, David told Gary emotional and diabolical stories that transmitted elements of what Gary already believed or wanted to believe. David talked of playing a kid in the classroom in the movie To Sir With Love, he also claimed to own property in Bel Air. The two chatted and exchanged stories till about four in the morning, and Gary had warmed to David. He even ended up sleeping in the same room with him that night. The next day, he took David to breakfast and gave him $10 for the airport fare. Like his marks, for con artists tend to refer to their victims as marks, David was seduced by the trappings of wealth and privilege. He labored for success, for glory, for material gain. He wanted desperately to drink from the cup of celebrity and wealth, to move himself up the social ladder. To him, it was the shortcut version of the American dream. In 1983, David landed his biggest break while visiting the campus of Connecticut College. Stylishly clad in skin-tight fawn stretch pants, with slicked-back hair, a mustache and glasses, he came across as a breezy conversationalist with a knack for dropping celebrity names. He introduced himself as Sidney Poitier's son and impressed the students with his charm and what one student called the sheer strength of his persona. Because of his casual confidence, 
no one could have suspected that he was anybody else. He stated that he was on campus to cast extras for the fictitious film version of Dreamgirls that his father was directing. The students believed him and let him crash in their dorms. Before leaving, he pocketed the address book of one of the students. The book was a gold mine. It contained the names and home addresses of some of Manhattan's most prominent figures, all potential prey for his ruse. David also used the same story at Harvard, where Josie Eiselin, daughter of John J. Eiselin, who was president of New York's artsy public service television station, attended. David was soon back in Manhattan, and he'd presented himself at the home of the Islands. He recognized he needed a way to win their trust, to mold any story to fit his narrative. He claimed to be a college friend of their daughters, who, of course, had never even laid eyes on him. He also claimed that he'd been mugged and that his last bag had contained a Harvard term paper on, a, of all things, the American justice system. The subject, he said, was, quote, injustices in the criminal justice system. He was armed with all these supporting details, so convincing and elaborate that there was no reason for the Islands to suspect him. They were taken with the idea of sheltering Poitiers' son for a night and welcomed him into their lives. They were eager to help him, or at least the person he purported to be. David reveled in the posh surroundings and fancy meals. He accepted the Iceland's money and clothes and regaled his hosts with stories about his famous father. He took great joy in living a lavish life and enjoying the comforts afforded by wealth and fame. He dazzled the wealthy Iceland's and mesmerized them by bringing them into his totally fictitious world of stardom. Though theft was apparently a motive in his con, it seemed to have been equally important to David that people acknowledge his chosen identities. The next evening, he gave precisely the same performance at the home of Osborne Elliott, a former editor of Newsweek and dean of the Columbia University School of Journalism. He said he was enrolled at Harvard and that he was a friend of the Elliott's daughter, a student at Yale. He added that his father would be flying in from Los Angeles the next day to start rehearsals for the film version of Dreamgirls. David and the Elliots had a long discussion of what it was like to be the son of a famous actor. At some point, he even made a comment about how awful Malibu was and stated that it was like Fire Island. He was incredibly familiar with the upper crust Manhattan set and had this insane ability to drop all of the right names. According to Inge, he accurately described the inside of Diane von Furstenberg's apartment. He knew where John Kennedy Jr. lived. He talked of Nina and Lenny Bernstein. He also seemed intimately familiar with the Harvard campus and other haunts of the Ivy League. The Elliots thought David was very pleasant and Osborne gave him $50 and some clothes. They took him in for the night, and for a moment, it seemed as though David Poitier could get into nearly any door. However, that night, he went a little too far. 
he smuggled a young man into his bed after the Elliots had turned in. The next morning, Inga Elliot caught him and his male friend red-handed. David attempted to pretend his friend, who was in fact a street hustler, was the nephew of Malcolm Forbes. But the Elliots were outraged and didn't believe him. They immediately threw him out of their home. Later, David made his second mistake by phoning the Elliot household from a phone box ostensibly to apologize. He proposed a meeting at a phone booth in Greenwich Village. The Elliots used this opportunity to report him to the police, who subsequently arrested him. The jig was finally up. It was October 1983, and David Hampton was only 19. He was arraigned on charges of petty larceny, criminal impersonation, and fraudulent accosting. He pleaded guilty to a lesser charge of attempted burglary and got away with an order to pay $4,490 in restitution to his victims, a group that included the Elliots and the Islands. He was also banished from New York City. Sidney Poitier learned about David's misdemeanors at this time, but refused to comment on them. In reality, Poitier had six daughters, but no sons. David failed to make the payments required of him by the law, and also violated the court order banning him from New York by checking into the fancy Pierre Hotel and renting limousines, all under the name David Poitier. The courts soon lost patience with him, and he was given his prison time. In 1985, he was sentenced to one year to four years in prison. He'd served almost two years when he was paroled from the state prison at Danamora in October 1986. Around the time of David's arrest, newspaper clippings of his swindling ways eventually caught the attention of the playwright John Guare. Guare was inspired by David's bizarre tale, which he learned more about through his friendship with Inge and Osborne Elliot. He wrote and produced a play called Six Degrees of Separation that was based on David's criminal pursuit of the glamorous life. The play was an instant hit when it opened at the Lincoln Center in 1990, and three years later, it was turned into a feature film starring Will Smith. The film also earned the actress, Stockard Channing, an Academy Award nomination. Critics praised Guare's work, calling it a brilliant exploration of the upper echelons of Manhattan society and the racial, sexual, and social complexes of the wealthy white upper class. Vincent Canby raved in the New York Times that the play was, quote, a masterwork that captures New York as Tom Wolfe did in Bonfire of the Vanities. It also won the New York Drama Critics Circle Award and an Obie and was a Pulitzer Prize finalist. After his release from prison in 1986, David wound up doing menial jobs in London, Europe, and on the west coast of the United States. He claimed to have lived in Europe for three years, supporting himself as a bartender, factory worker, and a Class A charmer. 
In Paris, he said he enjoyed the company of both men and women, and at one point lived royally with an older woman. In West Hollywood, he had a job delivering groceries. In Venice, he painted houses for a living. But when he caught wind of the play's success, he couldn't resist returning to his old playground. He returned to New York, upset and hurt by his portrayal in the play. In an interview with the New York Magazine, he vehemently stated, quote, you don't take somebody's life story without contacting them. You just don't do that. He gave several interviews to the New York Post, to the New York Times, where he claimed that the actor that played him in the play was too black, too ethnic. He said he could play the part better. He also stated, quote, I really want to succeed in the arts. I don't wish to become a victim of my notoriety. He essentially announced to the press that he was pursuing an acting career and, quote, would rather be known for positive achievements than as a slickster in an off-Broadway play. He tried to reach out to Guerre several times, but Guerre attempted to avoid him to the best of his abilities. David phoned Guerre, who was startled and dismissive, and had stated, quote, No, no, people have warned me about you. I can't talk to you. Soon, David got impatient. He began consulting a lawyer because he believed the play would be a new ticket for him to glamour, fabulousness, notoriety, and of course, money. He felt entitled to a cut of the cash generated by what he called his work. And in 1992, he sued, unsuccessfully, for a $100 million piece of the play's profits. Sure, in his life, he'd adopted various identities and tricked people into giving him shelter or money, but he'd been punished for his crimes and did his time in prison. But how could someone else steal his life and be rewarded for it? Gwe clearly based his award-winning play on David's misdemeanors, and so David argued that his identity had been stolen and misappropriated. That was him on stage, not Gwe's fictional character, Paul. He argued that he had the right to benefit from the fruits of his labor. However, the judge saw it differently, saying, quote, society's response to one whose labors are in violation of its penal laws is punishment, not reward. The suit was eventually dismissed. On the day the play was nominated for four Tony Awards, a court order was issued telling David to stay away from Guerre who claimed he was being threatened. David had left a threatening message on Guerre's answering machine that said, quote, I would strongly advise that you give me some money or you can start counting your days. He was later charged with harassment, but a jury eventually acquitted him. David tried hard to benefit from the play that he'd inspired, but never succeeded, creating new characters and cons long after the play debuted. While Guerre's play went on to have a life of its own, David continued to live through the characters he'd invented, taking on various identities and making many more appearances in court than he did on stage. He even spent a month dazzling students at New York University's Washington Post newspaper, 
where he told them that he was the one who'd penned the famous Six Degrees. He even went around telling people that he was in the show. He started to use their supplies and phones and copy machines. And then, true to form, he tried to cajole them into giving him a place to stay. Eventually, he was banned from campus after students complained that he was using them. After the play and film made his original con well-known, David travelled extensively to find new victims. His name appeared more often in crime reports than on page six, usually for matters that fell far short of being fabulous, including fair beating, credit card theft, and threats of violence. For instance, at one point, he got into an altercation with a New York cab driver after refusing to pay him for a ride. The cab driver called the police and told them that David had gotten out of his cab at Lexington Avenue and 92nd Street and refused to pay. The driver even claimed that David pointed something that looked like a small black handgun at him. David was arrested and charged with theft of services and criminal possession of a weapon. He spent the night in a holding cell before being released the next morning on his own recognizance. When he failed to make a court appearance, he told a judge that he'd missed the court date because of a car accident he'd been involved in. The Delta ambulance report that he produced to support his claim was naturally a fake. He continued duping others for money, for attention, and for entry into what he saw as the VIP room of New York life. Always using aliases, David played on the gay bar scene and with his celebrity good looks, charm and persuasiveness, succeeded in scamming his way into the high life, at least temporarily. He would meet men in bars and dazzle them with his good looks and wit, drop celebrity names and titbits gleaned from prior scams, and then con them. Sometimes he was Patrick Owens, sometimes Antonio Jones, and sometimes he was just David. During the late 1990s, he found a large number of men who, even if they've heard of his East Coast swindles, didn't know what he looked like. It allowed him to move about unnoticed and to continue to con multiple victims. One of his last victims was a man named Peter Bedevian, who went on a date in late October 2001 with a man he knew as David Hampton Montilio. Before dinner, David said that he wanted to take Peter to a charity celebrity benefit, but that he needed to borrow $1,000 for the two tickets. He was going to buy the tickets, he said, from friends from LA who were in town. Peter thought nothing of it, withdrew the money from an ATM and handed it over to David, who dashed into a downtown hotel to purchase the tickets. When he returned, the two sat down to dinner. According to Peter, they lived it up. They ate and drank and talked about everything, from the need to move past their post-9-11 tizzy to the extraordinary talents of Billie Holiday. David ordered a couple of $23 shots of fine scotch as after-dinner drinks, all on Peter's dollar. But to Peter, 
It seemed the right thing to do. Both men were having the time of their lives. However, later would come the sting of having been conned. Of David politely excusing himself to nip to the washroom, never to return. Of being left with a $423 restaurant bill. Of pressing criminal charges on David Montilio to reclaim his $1,000. Of identifying his charismatic dinner date through a police station's one-way mirror. On July 18, 2003, at the age of 29, David Hampton died of AIDS-related complications while being treated for his illness in Manhattan. He'd been living at an AIDS residence when his illness worsened and had been admitted to the Beth Israel Medical Center. David lived a life of pretense, dissatisfaction and crime. It was almost as though there was something about himself that prevented him from the enjoyment of simply being David Hampton. Although he felt used by the Guerre play, he was using people well before and well after the six degrees of separation phenomenon. He was a man who'd reinvented himself over and over, often with tragic consequences. He was a fraudster, a fabulist, or even an actor who used the world as a stage, creating characters that, in the end, were cons. Thank you for listening to Grifter. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe, rate, and leave us a review on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and wherever else you get your podcast. Links to the sources I used to research this episode are included in the description. See you at our next episode.